millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. G'day everyone, it's Baz Dubois and this is Hammer at Home. I feel as a race and me personally as an individual, I just don't think we're doing enough to nurture the planet and provide the cultural stability, the food and the environment that humans need to flourish. We all like to think we're doing the right thing, using our keep cups and avoiding one-use plastics, and we are. But there's so much more we have to do as a culture. Until we start valuing humanity, sustainability and the planet, we're just going to continue down the wrong track. This needs a complete rethink, and we are the only people that can guide that rethink. How much of a part do corporations play in climate change? Well, they produce pretty much everything we buy or eat and drink. So it's fair to say they contribute a fair amount to those emissions that are causing us so much drama. Are any of them doing anything about it? I want some answers, so I went straight to the top at one of the globe's giants, IKEA. Yep, IKEA, one of the biggest corporations on earth, and I spoke to their Australian CEO, Jan Gardberg. So Jan, just how sustainable is IKEA? Sustainability is really engraved into the company through our DNA how we are thinking. I mean, we are founded as a low-cost company in order to be able to also achieve that. We are constantly being obsessed since the beginning with the waste and seeing waste as a sin and trying to always to utilize raw materials to its, uh, to its maximum. So it was quite natural for us that sustainability is really integrated in our total business model. The actual strategy that we share among all uh, IKEA, different IKEA companies is called our people and planet positive strategy. And that is basically in, built in, you could say, in three different blocks. So, so the first block is really around what's the range that we're offering? How is that designed and thought of from the beginning? The material choices, what's the end of life of the product and the, the total life cycle. And it's also directly connected to the behaviors and usage of our range in an everyday life for the customers. So we try to think it from, from that perspective. The second block is basically around our own operations and our own buildings and uh, how we utilize uh, energy, clean energy, circularity, striving for zero waste and becoming you know, 100% uh, circular. And uh, it's also around the renewable energy part and also our own operations. So the buildings, uh, what we trigger when it comes with travel to and from, for example, store locations, the supply chain setup and so on. And the third block is really about equality, diversity, inclusion. It's about the community involvement. And so wherever we are present, how do we integrate into the fabric of the society and contribute in a positive way beyond our core business? Wow. Those blocks and this incredible governance you're working with here is amazing. How long have you personally been with IKEA? 
I've had the, uh, the privilege and the pleasure to work for over 37 years now. So I started when, when I was 20, back in the 80s. We were 7,000 co-workers, including the founder, Ingvar. And I have seen how we kind of have evolved. And you know that all of this is coming from the values of one person, Ingvar, when he was 17 years old, when he formed the company. The whole environment there in Sweden where he grew up is very harsh. It's like that way of living went in when he started the company. So before even the word sustainability was invented, in the furniture dealer's testament that he wrote 1976. If you don't read sustainability, you read in there, you, in between there, it's all about exactly the same things that we are even more sharper on right now. Already back then, we had uh, some plans, but they were not as focused. And I would say that about 15 years ago, we came up with a much more clearer plan with these three blocks and the people and positive strategy. And also it is connected, of course, to that uh, back in the 80s, we were very few stores and uh, I think under 10,000 co-workers totally globally. And today we are soon close to 200,000 co-workers and uh, more than 500 stores. So, of course, the size of the business is different. And, uh, and of course, we got scale opportunities and then to be able to also unite behind one plan going forward. And of course, we always go back and revise it. For example, the, the digital and technical development uh, that's really been going exponentially also gives new possibilities and opportunities that maybe before wasn't even thought of or they were too costly to implement. And, uh, and of course, that means that we need to constantly revise the plan. But the overall strategies are very, very clear. It's a real science, isn't it? But you've had to make it a science because you're producing so much. And I guess you've realized the damage it could be done if those things weren't considered, if, if you didn't think about what the end product was and where the end product would end up. So I really commend you for that. It's funny talking about technology. You're on one side of Sydney and I'm on the other side and my producer is in another area altogether. A few years ago, we would have all had to have been in the same room together for this chat. That would mean more transport than more pollution. I'm going to ask you a question. Who do we blame for the lack of sustainability on our planet? Is it mums and dads? Is it governments? Or is it corporations? Mm. And I think it's, it's one important thing here when you mentioned this about uh, connecting uh, via digital like you and me and having this conversation. I'm more reflecting from it that it's, it's a behavior thing. We have a tendency as human beings, I guess, we want to have things in order. We put up our schedules and then we kind of start to plow in those uh, uh, wheel tracks. And it's so hard to get out of those wheel tracks to adapt a new behavior and a new thinking. So thinking about, for example, remote or hybrid working, it's in very few situations where you actually need to have the person physically being in an office. But somehow we haven't been able to break through that one until we got this kind of circuit breaker with COVID-19 and realized that yeah, it's actually the competence and the mind, uh, minds that needs to get together first and foremost. And of course, depending on what type of activities that you are doing, if you're doing maybe a creative session where you need to work with the, the walls around you and, and throw around ideas, then it's good to be physically together. But other parts you can do equally well, or if not even more focused and better in an electronic way. And I think that kind of points towards that uh, we need much more often, I believe, to also to stop us individuals to reflect on where am I 
what am I actually doing and can I do things in a, in a better way? But we have somehow built in in us this kind of the default, you know, one day goes by, a week goes by and a month and then a couple of years. And we are maybe just thinking about doing changes, but we're not actually doing them. That's a great point. I'm a big fan of IKEA and I work with you guys often. I had a behaviour expert on the show a couple of weeks back and I asked the question, how come we do the things we know are wrong? We know they're wrong and we still do them. And she explained that we often don't think about things. Our brain takes little shortcuts. For example, if we're going to go to the shops, we grab our phone, we grab our wallet, we grab our keys and and off we go. What IKEA is doing, and I love this, it's helping us realize that you've got to train your brain to do things better. So you guys have got those little uh, organization stations. We have one near the front door. And it means I put my carry bag, my keep cup, as well as my wallet and phone and the things I take without thinking to the shops. And uh, these little things are helping us to train our brain to be better. Can you tell me, has it been difficult implementing any of the plans you've had over the years? Of course, um, we as everyone else uh, face different type of challenges. And I, I would like to say like this, that the quest we are on right now to go striving for, uh, for you know, 100% circular and being climate positive, I would argue that this is most probably the, the toughest thing we have ever taken on within IKEA. And we are fully committed for this by 2030 to reach the goals. Are we clear exactly on how that can happen? No, we are very clear on why we need to do it and what it needs to contain, but we still need to work hard with the how. And then with that, it comes also an opportunity for us. Uh, As you know, and and everyone else listening, uh, our products have always been designed from the beginning as flat packs and knockdown. Of course, that was not from the beginning uh, happening because of environmental way of thinking. It was more about the distribution cost to try to get the dining table from one side of the country to another. It would create the damages if the legs were sticking out and so forth. And plus it took a, a lot of space and just transporting air so that it drove the cost. So that's also how the flat pack kind of was invented at IKEA. But that means also that all of our furniture are made out of components. By now then applying the kind of circular thinking already when thinking about an idea and then coming up with a a solution through a product, we have also the opportunity since we own that part of of the total chain that we can already from the beginning think about how should this product be able to, in the easiest way, be able to take in a part? How can we reduce the number of type of materials? So it's single material or only maybe two materials. How can we standardize fittings and, and screws? We have invented right now, we have something we call the, the dowel, the wood dowel. So it actually is made out of wood and you snap it together. But if you move, you can snap it off. But then also when you come to the end of life, it's also easy to put it back as a commodity into the supply chain again and then to, to redo it. So I think it is one of the toughest things we have ever taken on to switch our totality of the operations into 100% circular. But again, the opportunities we have because of the way that our products are put together, we have a, an, an amazing opportunity to do it really right. I absolutely love that mindset. You've stated that IKEA wants to achieve something that's quite amazing and you want to do it by 2030 and that's your goal. 
To me, that's inspiring. What sort of innovation do you think we're going to see in the future? Oh, a number of things. One, just lately that we started, this is happening in Sweden. I mean, Sweden is a, a country, as you know, with a, a lot of forests. And um, we and IKEA, we also produce a lot of different type of textile products from curtains and sheets and uh, pillowcases to what you put on top of your, your sofa. And uh, of course, we have switched to 100% better cotton. But we also see that there is a, a challenge when it comes with circularity uh, with textiles. So we have started a pilot project together with Stora Enso, which is a big forestry company, H&M and us. And uh, there is a new technology to make trees into textiles. So you actually get uh, textile fibers made out of the cellulose and the wood. And uh, that just opened up, I think, a pilot factory in, in Sweden. And uh, that is then to continuously learn in partnership with others how we can scale this one. And of course, the vision is that to be able to transition from the ways that we think about textiles today into actually wood-based textiles. And I think these are one example where also technology is playing a big part. But another important factor into this one is the partnership. I think that uh, we from IKEA, we, uh, we have our values and we, we talk about the humbleness. And if I should be a little bit self-critical, I think sometimes maybe we have interpreted that humbleness a little bit too strict on ourselves, that we haven't been shouting big enough about the good things that we actually do. And it's maybe also have before have been holding us back to create uh, really strong partnerships across maybe industries. And I think that's the way forward now, where also new solutions that are yet not known will come through partnership with like-minded companies that share our same vision about the future for the planet and the climate change. I would like to bust really a myth that uh, going all in uh, uh, sustainability, that it costs more. I think we have proven for ourselves and with our partners that is a myth. When you do it in the right way, it's actually a win-win-win situation. It's a win for the company because it's actually better and smarter business. It is a win for the planet and the environment and actually it's a win for the consumer also. I usually talk about that. It's not about we need to find these solutions and prove over and over again that by saving the planet, you actually save your wallet at the same time. And you can uh, make a, you know, a lot of savings from that. And I, and I think that's uh, proven over and over. And I hope that by taking continuously a, um, a front leader position and, and talk and share, hopefully that inspires also other industries and companies to come along and see that this is the right way forward. That's one of the reasons that we've partnered up together. It's why I believe in your brand. Now, I travel a lot with my show, The Living Room. But every time I fly in from Melbourne or Adelaide or somewhere there, I'm just gobsmacked by the sea of solar panels on the big IKEA stores. And I love it. And I know you guys are planning to use 100% renewable electricity by 2025. I can see by the sea of photovoltaic cells or the solar panels, as a lot of people know them as, all over the roofs uh, that you're definitely on the way. And that's fantastic. I love that. Are you in fact on track? And do you think this goal is achievable? Yeah, it's definitely achievable. And, and Barry, thank you for bringing that one up. Specifically here in Australia, I'm 
extremely excited and also have a very positive outlook specifically in, in this topic. Because just as we are speaking, we are on the way in IKEA Adelaide store. We are on the way in a partnership to actually commissioning additional solar panels plus a huge battery installation. So three batteries will, uh, in a couple of months, be also installed at the Adelaide store. Each battery is the size of a 40-foot container. And then together with Planet Arc and Epic Energy and us, the idea there is that, you know, in the previous uh, years, we have been putting solar panels for a long time on our buildings. But then we realized that's only good for us. It's just covering our own operations. If we are operating in a community and many of our stores are close to where people are living, how can we help to support to decarbonize the electric grid? And with this setup in Adelaide, we will actually become an energy distributor also into the Adelaide city and the, the community. So we will overproduce, I mean, the excess production of electricity, covering 100% our own operations. And the excess will then go out and feed into the grid. And then people will be able to enjoy direct fed green energy that is very close to the city. And this is a pilot project which we are doing, and we are now then with this one, we are thinking, how can we scale this up? So first and foremost, of course, uh, around all of the stores that we have here in, in Australia, but how can this also become a m most probably a working model for other IKEA locations around in the world? But that would not have been possible without going in again with a strong partnership. So I'm really happy and proud about that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of the experts I've spoken to about climate change, but also about architecture and about urban development, all say the same thing. And it seems to be a common thread. We need to start creating these micro power stations. So what you're doing in Adelaide is amazing. And if we can, if more corporations, if these big factories that we see all around the place, if they could harness that natural energy from the sun, capture it and then distribute it into the area just around them like a micro grid, that's just going to save us. It's, it's going to reduce energy in so many ways. I commend you for what you're doing with that. And I want to ask you, are you planning to build more stores in Australia? And will you be looking at the way it's done? What I'm getting at is, have you started to think about using more sustainable materials and incorporating more green spaces? Yes, uh, for the first thing there with more stores, the future for IKEA in Australia will not be most probably that you will see a lot of more of the large format stores that we have. We are looking at the much more square meter effective and smaller footprints. And that is basically driven from the market and the, and the consumers. So we have 
for whole Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, we have mapped out all the different neighborhoods and looked at statistics, movements of people, where do they work, where do they shop, where do they take leisure time and, and so forth. And we need to be able to find ways where we can be much more closer to where the people actually are spending also uh, the time. And the only way to also to do that is to, to think about much smaller footprint uh, stores. Already in Europe, we have a couple of those stores uh, up and running. If we call them extra small stores, and then you also have something called like City Shop and uh, Home Planning uh, Studios. We believe that that's going to be the way forward for us here also in Australia. But with that, uh, it comes also that whenever we are putting up a new building now, we follow the BREEAM excellent standard or the LEED gold level as a minimum requirement for any new building coming up. And those are the two most uh, commonly used ratings for buildings. And then we try to always add something else that uh, kind of makes it even better. And that means also that uh, supplying steel, concrete, etc., and so on is the next step with this one, that we also can secure those sub-suppliers that are actually doing the construction work for us, that also the material is actually produced also in a climate-friendly way as ever possible with the current technology. We are one of the few consumer companies, retail companies, that actually own the total supply chain. From idea to the end. Also, with that comes a, a huge amount of accountability and responsibility also because the total setup, we actually directly or like first tier and ourselves, we employ and, and kind of affect 2.5 million people in the totality of the, the supply chain and etc. With that one, we also have then a, a big opportunity to move it faster. We have this opportunity now to make this uh, big change. For example, maybe, you know, Kung's Bakka, it's, uh, it's one of our kitchens. So all of the fronts and, uh, you know, the drawers and so on is made out of pet bottles. But of course, we don't have a setup here in Australia also where, you, you know, the waste streams kind of comes together nicely and neatly so that you can actually also produce here. So that one, unfortunately, we are shipping that one from Italy. It's made in Italy. But this is also one example of looking at now what is waste and how to view it as commodity and then putting it back in again. Because I think also that we're not going to stop consuming things, but in order to be able to still be able to consume, it has to be circular. It's the only way forward. And the science says that. But sorry to say, I think that, yes, from a scientific perspective, everything was clear already 20 years ago where the projection is. But we never put in, leaders never put in a communication strategy that was designed for a layman. It became too scientific, too uh, hard to grasp. And I think it's taken us 20 years to just to kind of educate the masses. And I think the communication, which is a part of leadership, is so important to bring maybe complicated things into what does it actually mean for me? And I think we missed that opportunity uh, 20 years ago. Jan, this is a tough question, and I know you're a high-level manager in a big company, so I know you have to be diplomatic. But does government help you? Are they a hindrance or are they a help with this sort of development that you're working with? I can right now, of course, only talk from an Australia perspective. We are also in a development project to establish ourselves in New Zealand. Maybe it's also because we have always a very optimistic uh, viewpoint from, from an IKEA perspective, but I wouldn't say that there's any barriers for what we want to achieve. 
Are there then opportunities where there could be areas that could help not only us, but where I believe that the total society should go? Definitely. And one of those ones is, for example, uh, everything connected to waste. This is about striving for zero waste to landfill. And there I believe that uh, it is also a spread accountability and responsibilities among the different states and, uh, and the local uh, municipalities. And I'm specifically referring here to, and you know, I'm, I'm from Finland, lived a long period also in, in Sweden, and uh, I'm kind of brought up in the 70s and the 80s. And we very early on learned on how to, at the home, sort the different waste fractions and so on. And when I moved here four years ago, I was very confused when I only saw the yellow bin and the red bin and then the green bin. And for me, I didn't know what sh- how should I dispose of all of these aluminum cans? Where should I, you know, sort out the cardboard paper or these ones that have plastic on, etc. and so on. And that infrastructure, I think, still needs to develop here so that we can engage also all of the consumers so we can get the sea waste as a commodity. And here, I think it's not about rocket science. I mean, there already exist countries around in the world where it's just to copy and paste. So if there's any area that I would like to see to speed up, it's those kind of basic things that we give the infrastructure, both for the industry, but also for us as private consumers. And then on top of that one, it's then possible also to find most probably business models where we can utilize the waste back into a supply chain where it can be reproduced into new goods again and get the circular economy going in those waste streams. It's funny. I think in Australia, we don't really recognize waste as a problem that it really is. I know um, as a corporation, your point of view is that waste shouldn't be seen as waste. It should be or we should be innovating to make sure that waste becomes a resource. I think it's because there are so few of us and it's such a huge country. But what we don't realise is there's a huge amount of energy going into the things that we create just to waste or end up in landfill. Now, I'm not a fan of coal, but the main thing that comes from landfill is methane. And methane is 24 to 26 times more greenhouse emission than burning coal. So this is a really terrible thing. I think using waste as a resource is something we could pretty simply innovate. And you clearly are. You guys are working on that. You've said that all change in society begins at home. So as consumers, what can we do at home? What are the choices we can make with regard to our behaviours and how we're spending? I think this is the key area for change going forward. And it starts with every change starts with me as an individual. And of course, me as an individual, if I'm then in my home and uh, or living with a partner or a family, it's all about my behaviors there. I mean, there's so many uh, tips and things that are very easy to do. I would recommend if persons have not yet switched all of their lights in their home to LED, it's just to do it tomorrow. That is like a basic step number one. You do a good thing for the environment, but at the same time, you also do something good for your own uh, personal economy. And you start to earn money from day one. And then uh, with the quality these days, the lifetime for LED bulb is maybe 20 years or 25 years or 15 years, something like that. Then, of course, water. 
we are blessed here in Australia. Every morning, there's a lot of people taking a shower, but a big portion of people around in, in our beautiful planet, the first problem in the morning is for a mother or a father saying, how can we get clean drinking water today for our family? And we are basically using water like it would be there forever. So therefore, the water saving mechanisms that exist already built in in our taps, for example, or you can buy these things that you can put on top of the tap. These are kind of things that you can quickly change. We ourselves in our family, me and my wife, including me, I was sitting down and sewing textile bags out of some old curtains. And we use those ones when we go and shop uh, vegetables. So we don't use any plastic bags. I think today uh, we need to kind of refuse to take plastic bags to put uh, apples and cucumbers and, uh, and, and so forth in there. We are, for example, when we are washing our, uh, our rice and vegetables, we always wash that in a bucket and then we use that water. We save it on the side and we water it on the flowers because there's nutrition in there. You know, sometimes you have deep in your fridge maybe some vegetables that look a little bit dried out and not so pretty. That's maybe not so nice to have in a salad. We always collect all of these ones. And then in the end of the week, I put them together in, uh, in the oven. You know, mix it with a little bit balsamic vinegar, sea salt, pepper in there. And it's just a beautiful meal that we can enjoy instead of throwing that away. So that is with the food waste. So there's tons of things that we as consumers in our everyday life, if you just stop and think about it, it has to start there. And uh, we cannot just from one vantage point say, yeah, it, why aren't the agenda moving quick enough? The government is not doing this so that the businesses are not doing this. Every time you point the finger, there's at least four fingers pointing to or three fingers pointing towards you, yourself. So I think that's a very important part. And, and here uh, we are through our stores and our website when we show our solution tips and ideas. We're trying to give a nudge to the, for change in behavior with our consumers and not writing on the nose and saying you have to do like this, but to show also that to make it easy and fun and interactive and stimulate those type of behaviors. People that watch my show, The Living Room, know that I'm working with a family on another innovation from IKEA. You've got these what we call sustainable families, and you're trying to teach them new behaviors and introduce them to new ways. How are you going with that program? Yeah, I think it's in the middle of the total programs. And uh, what we are extremely happy with is, of course, that, uh, again, it's not so much about teaching. It's more about creating that curiosity around the subjects and then enabling that to take its own organic form. And now it's incredible to see uh, some of the stories that uh, they are sharing publicly. So it's going very well. Then hopefully we have some new exciting ambassadors that uh, can continue to spread knowledge and. Uh, tell their story, and hopefully that inspires others to follow. The family that I'm working with, well, they want to get onto that ladder to a more environmentally sustainable life, but they just didn't know where to start. We're going to follow their journey for 12 months, and the results, I've got to say, are already amazing. But the education you're giving their children, that's going to set us in the right direction. I can tell just talking to you that you're a very optimistic person do you think we've turned the corner yet or do we still have a long way to go? I think we have turned the corner and 
it's quite remarkable to see that uh, three, four years ago, we had a survey done here in Australia asking questions around climate change and what do you think and uh, what are the important topics and, and so forth. And this survey was now also then conducted in the end of last year, 2020. And this is with the backdrop of the bushfires and in the middle of this with the COVID-19. And it's remarkable to see how it actually has switched. And I, I think that the good thing that has come out from these two big crises that we have gone through as, as a nation, it became the kind of big nationwide circuit breaker where we all actually had to stop and start to reflect because of the restrictions and so on, no freedom of movement. And people were spending more time with themselves and with the partners and the families. And you started to realize what is really important for me in my life. Why am I here right now at this point in, in my life? And also the connections between family members and relatives and grandparents and, and, and so forth. And I think those are those amazing, nice qualities that we have as, as human beings that we sometimes maybe don't always bring forward, you know, to looking at things with compassion and empathy and, and letting that also drive our decision making and saying, what is morally right? What is not just, uh, this is what I want. It's not about what you want. It's what do I need? What do I as a person actually need? And I think that has helped also to turn the corner that people start to realize that certain things in life are not there forever. The ways of life that we have today, if we really want to keep it like this and continue to evolve it, then we need to do some changes. And coming back to what we started off, what are those new wheel tracks that we need to find and not to fall back into the old kind of behavior? Yeah, I think the bushfires and then COVID have shown us how precious conversation is. And with conversation comes education. And I've always said education is the key to equality and opportunity. We need to maintain that conversation. We need to keep the narrative going. I love the fact that you're exploring the use of trees as a fiber for textiles. I'm a big fan of hemp. Is that something being considered by IKEA? At our IKEA of Sweden, which is the company that owns the design and the quality and drives the product development, are working with a specific list of uh, environmentally friendly uh, materials. And hemp is one of those uh, materials on this list. What is important for us obviously, is to find uh, scalability in any type of uh, a solution. So it took us for a long time to work out how to work and incorporate, for example, bamboo into our, our range. And 20 years ago, when I was working in IKEA Sweden and working with design, that's when we started actually with bamboo and we started with flooring because back then we were selling hard flooring and that was what we could kind of develop. But now we have it, for example, in our bathroom range, we have it in kitchen utensils and a lot of other things. And there the, the success was that why it took such a long time was again to find also a scalability into it so that we could get the right type of volumes, the right technology and, and, and so forth to bend it and warp it and uh, wrap it and so forth. And that is a lot of technology development. And uh, I foresee that this is going to continue also. I want you to answer this question for me. If you could think about three or four generations into the future. Just imagine your great-great-grandchildren found this podcast and it was uh, a way for them to find out what it was like here right now. What would you 
when it comes to the environment and environmental sustainability, what would you say sorry for? Wow, Barry, that was a, <laughs> a question I never had asked before. What would I apologize for? Um, yeah, I would most probably say that, uh, that we should have switched our economical model much quicker than when we finally did it. And with that, I mean that today, for a long, long period, we have used exactly the same economical model to define success, to define growth, to define prosperity. Basically, what I'm talking here about is that money, more money, and then you know more turnover and, uh, and more uh, volumes. And uh, that is the one that most probably I would be there apologizing and saying that I wasn't able to influence from my capacity to change that economical model. And that is for our total society. Because it's driving today with the GDP growth, it does not take in consideration the actual costs that it creates down the line. Because the timeline is much longer. We drive economies and nations' economies more from a quarterly base. But we know our planet has been around, what is it, 13.5 billion years. And things happen, but they also show the results maybe 10, 15, 20 years later. The bad taste is coming there. And I think that's uh, it's something that I, I myself also think that... Uh, it's a key for the total planet, the economical model, how we measure success. I think we've learned a lot from this, that conversation around environment, consideration of what we use, how we use it, and what happens to it once we're finished with it is so important. In the next episode, I'll be talking about something I have a real passion for, and that is urban architecture and how we can solve a lot of problems with that, but also something that I'm very interested in and I think is one of the ways we can start getting out of the problem we're in, and that's the use of hemp. I'm Barry Dubois, and this has been Hammer at Home. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.